You're listening to the Matheson Employment Law Podcast, presented by Brian Dunn, Head of Matheson Employment Practice. This is a regular podcast series for HR practitioners, employment lawyers, and in-house counsel, focusing on the legal issues relevant to all companies with employees in Ireland. Hello and welcome to the Matheson Employment Law Podcast series. Today, rather than follow our normal format and looking at a particular case, I want to share with you a recording of a recent webinar we ran within our group. This is one of a series of webinars we have been running in relation to COVID-19 since things kicked off in March, and this was the third in the particular series. In this session, Geraldine Carr, one of our employment partners, led a discussion in relation to the health and safety issues, the working time issues, and also the data privacy concerns that employers are facing now in dealing with employees on long-term remote working, but also in the context of the return to work planning. Now, I'm sure for many of you, you have already been dealing with some of these points since March. However, what we've found in practice within the group over the last couple of months is, while a lot of these questions remain the same, the actual issues that they're throwing up for employers and the approaches employers are taking are evolving month on month. So hopefully this session will give you a very useful insight into the trends employers are taking at the moment and the approaches that we are seeing in the workplace. We will be returning in the coming weeks to the normal format because there have been a couple of very interesting decisions issued in recent weeks in regard to things like reasonable accommodation and also protected disclosures. For now, I'll pass you over to the webcast. Thank you. Hello, everyone, and you're all very welcome today to our webinar on remote working during COVID-19 and beyond. My name is Geraldine Carr, and I'm joined today by my colleagues, Emer Boyle, and Tina O'Sullivan, both senior associates in the employment team here in Matheson, and Alison Finn, an associate in the employment team here in Matheson. And today we're going to talk to you about some of the key issues around remote working. There was a survey recently carried out by NUIG Galway, a national survey which found that 83% of those surveyed wanted to continue to work from home after the COVID-19 crisis. And so this is likely to become something that's a more longer term trend. And indeed, we've seen many companies um, come out and publicly announce that they are moving to more permanent working from home arrangements or longer term working from home arrangements for their staff. So today we want to take you through just a number of issues like the health and safety considerations for staff working from home, the provision of equipment and allowances and what employers are obliged to do around this area, the obligations for employers around looking after the mental health and well-being of their employees. We look at the obligations employers have to track working time and how that fits around employees working remotely. We look at how employers are helping employees to balance their childcare with work commitments at the current time. And we look at data protection issues insofar as it relates specifically to remote working and the issues that that can throw up on the data protection front. And finally, we'll take a look at remote working policies and what we would recommend you include in your remote working policies. But first of all, I suppose to recap on where we are now, we're currently at phase two of the roadmap to reopening business and society. And that's very clear that businesses are required to maintain employees working remotely where they can do so. And that's in line also with the return to work safely protocol, which says for non-essential services, office work should continue to be carried out from home where practicable. And it also makes it clear that workers in sensitive risk groups or vulnerable workers should continue to work from home where they can do so also. 
So from a health and safety perspective, employers have a duty to ensure, so far as reasonably practicable, the safety, health and welfare of work of their employees. And this includes and extends to the employee's remote working workspace. So we've seen some very helpful guidance being issued by the HSA on their website, which sets out certain questions that employers should ask of their employees in order to enable their employees to assess the appropriateness of their home working space. But a common question that has come up in practice is, well, to what extent do employers have to provide equipment to their employees to set up their own homework space? So I'd like to turn to you, Alison, if you don't mind. Could you talk to us a little bit about this area and what we're seeing employers do in this space? Well, in short, Geraldine, as yet, there's no statutory requirement on an employer to cover any expenses related to working from home. And unless an employer has an obligation to pay for these expenses pursuant to a contract of employment or relevant policies, the general position is that an employer is not obliged to cover these expenses. In practice, we're seeing many employers reject requests from their employees to cover I think we've lost Alison for a moment there, but in terms of, I suppose, the requests of what we're seeing employers do, um, I think what Alison was outlining is we're seeing employers reject requests from employees to cover items such as their work desk or their a specific chair, but also to address this issue, what some employers are doing is they are providing employees with a questionnaire, which will ask employees for, I suppose, employees to confirm whether they have any particular medical requirements for, you know, a specific work equipment or work chair to be provided to them. And Alison, I can think, I think you're nodding. So I see you're back. Will I hand it back over to you? Yeah, thanks so much, Geraldine. I don't know if you touched on there that their employer should be aware about the recent HSA guidance. So this, where an employer does provide employees with equipment, we would suggest that employees are reminded that this equipment will remain company property and it should only be used for business use. We've seen a growing trend as well recently in the larger tech companies of employees being provided with allowances of upwards of 500 euro to assist employees in setting up a home office. And this may be something that an employer may want to consider if they envisage that employees will be working from home in the longer term and beyond the timeframe set out in the government guidance. Great, thank you. If an employee, I suppose, answers a questionnaire and says that they do want a specific chair to be provided to them, is the employer obliged to go out and buy that chair for that employee and for anyone else who perhaps asks for the same equipment? Best employment, unless it would impose a disproportionate burden on the employer. And if an employer is put on notice that an employee does have a specific medical condition that requires additional supports to be put in place, we would suggest that an employee is required to provide medical evidence of their condition so that an employer can consider this and then ensure that they do have in place suitable, reasonable accommodations. So, for instance, proper seating and workstation arrangements may need to be provided for employees with back problems where an employer is on notice of this. Very good. And then that addresses, I suppose, the physical aspects of ensuring they have a safe place of work. But what about the mental health and well-being of employees? What are the obligations towards employers to look after or to safeguard employees' mental health? Employers do need to be proactive in considering how to manage their employees' health and safety while working remotely. Employers do have a duty under health and safety legislation to ensure a safe place of work for their employees. And according to the Health and Safety Authority, an employer has the same responsibility for the safety and health of employees who work from home as for any other employees. 
And part of this duty is an obligation on the employer to assess the employee's working environment for systems and hazards leading to health and safety hazards such as stress. Working from home can result in employees feeling isolated, working longer hours and really blurring the lines between work and family life. There was a recent report commissioned by LinkedIn and that found that 56% of respondents reported feeling more anxious and stressed since the restrictions have been introduced. And they also reported working an extra 38 hours per month on average. So that's essentially an additional working week. So employers do need to be proactive on how to discharge their duty under the health and safety legislation. So they certainly do have a duty to look after mental health and well-being. And what are we seeing employers do to discharge this duty? Well, I suppose it's important to ensure that employers maintain regular communication with remote workers. So this would include line managers scheduling regular one-to-one meetings with their employees. This really serves to boost morale and also mitigate against the risk of employees' mental health deteriorating as a result of working in isolation. Employers should also be reminding their employees to practice healthy work practices, such as getting regular exercise, getting outdoors regularly, not eating at their desk and taking regular breaks from screen time and emails. Employees should also be encouraged to use their annual leave during this time to take some rest and to look after their mental health and well-being. We have noticed a trend amongst some of our clients whereby they're allowing employees to essentially gain leave by taking leave. So, for instance, some of our clients are offering an additional day's paid leave where an employee takes a block of, say, five days annual leave or 10 days annual leave consecutively. And we've also noticed that many of our clients are making virtual supports available to their employees during this time. And what kind of virtual supports, Alison, are you seeing? Is it, I don't know, virtual yoga classes or is there something else that employers are introducing? Yeah, we've actually seen like our clients being quite innovative on this aspect. So employers are providing employees with access to virtual well-being workshops on how to manage stress and anxiety. And also, as you said, access to virtual yoga and Pilates classes. We'd also suggest that if an employer has an employee assistance program available, that they remind employees of this during this time. And can I turn then to the working time obligations of employers? What are the obligations for employers to track working time and rest breaks during, particularly during the crisis? Is there any change to that or um, what would you recommend for employers in that regard? Yeah, absolutely. Like many employees now are working irregular hours rather than your standard nine to five to balance childcare and other commitments that they have. But from an employer's perspective, the Organisation of Working Time Act applies to employers in the same way, whether their employees are working remotely or working in the office. Employees are entitled to their usual breaks and rest periods as provided for in the legislation. And we have seen that Workplace Relations Commission inspectors are continuing to enforce employer obligations to track employee working time, despite the practical difficulties that this can pose during COVID-19. So employers really must be able to demonstrate their compliance with the legislation in the event of either an inspection by the WRC or a claim for breach of the legislation by an employee. So it's important for employers to have in place objective, reliable and accessible systems to measure an employee's working hours and breaks. Where an employer does have a formal system of monitoring working hours in place and that they can demonstrate that they took corrective action if an employee was working excessive hours. 
Okay, I think I think your point, Alison, there is that's the best way to defend a claim. Um, you just your Wi-Fi broke up again. Imer, I might turn to you for the next question. I suppose Alison touched on briefly there where employers are are tracking working time and employees are working different hours due to the need to balance childcare or other caring commitments. But given the closure of schools and creches at the moment, how are employers helping employees in practice to balance these various commitments during COVID-19? Well, Geraldine, in order to plug the gap in childcare that practically every working parent is experiencing right now, what we're seeing from employers is flexibility around the working day and facilitating the completion of tasks, perhaps outside of the very rigid, you know, traditional nine to half five office hours, so long, of course, as productivity and business continuity are not compromised. Uh, in terms of longer gaps and not just the daily firefighting to keep children in check, what employers are looking at is the option of parental leave. Some are offering blocks on an unpaid or perhaps partly paid basis and where they are choosing to, to provide part pay. Generally, we're seeing this in the region of about 20 to 30% pay. Likewise, sabbaticals are being used in this way, so paid, part paid or unpaid. And just a note to the caregivers amongst us, not just childcare, but many employees also have caregiving responsibilities and often employers are providing the same level of flexibility um, as to those with children, obviously, where, where business needs allow. Also, taking annual leave has been encouraged by um, employers, although, as Alison rightly pointed out, it's important that annual leave is taken for rest and relaxation and to, to maintain good uh, mental health and well-being, not just to plug the gap when it comes to childcare. And I suppose it occurs to me that remote working in itself also creates other issues around data protection. And perhaps you have people who are house sharing and there are a number of other issues that employers should consider. Could you outline to us, I suppose, what are the some of the key data protection challenges and issues that employers should be aware of in relation to their remote workforce? Certainly. And thankfully, we have very clear guidance on this from our Data Protection Commission. And what they say and what we agree is the really key and probably the most common challenge that employers face in this um, scenario, this new age of, of this vast remote working employee population is the security of data during this, this period. And I suppose, understandably, in light of the fact that for many workforces, uh, they became a remote workforce or, or a majority remote workforce at quite short notice, for some practically overnight, um, in order to, to ensure that business continuity. So in doing so, the challenge that businesses have faced is to ensure that their systems are set up securely, that records can be securely accessed and that all of the protocols that would normally be in place in the, the physical workplace, the, traditionally the office, are now being observed in the new remote workplace, which for many is, is the home. So to take a, an example that the DPC has, has provided guidance on, devices, that's what we mean by BYOD, bring your own device. I would invite all of us who have joined us in the webinar today to consider via what device have you joined us? Is it a phone, laptop, tablet, or PC? And who owns that device? Is it your own personal device? Is it an organization device? And regardless of the answer to that question, how do you use that device to access company systems? Are these being accessed in the same safe and secure way that they would be accessed if you were in the physical workplace? Also a word to hard copy records because 
understandably, not everybody is working purely within software and many of our clients have a a part or a fully paper-based system. And in order to allow employees to continue with their roles during this current time, some of them may have to have been facilitated in bringing home hard copy documentation if they've done so. And if that has been assessed as an appropriately safe method of of allowing business continuity, are the same safety measures, are the same protocols being afforded to those physical records in the workplace, the new workplace, which is inevitably the home, as they would be in the physical office workplace. Likewise, is uh, access to information being controlled? You mentioned, Eldrin, in your question about house shares, very common query that we're seeing where perhaps employees from, from different businesses, sometimes competitors, are sharing houses and they have to be extra careful. And this is a challenge and employees have to be extra careful where that is the case so that both data protection implications don't arise and also general business confidentiality as well is also observed. A brief mention disposal of data and retention of data, sometimes forgotten and overlooked because it's traditionally seen as the end stage in the data life cycle. But ask yourselves, and this is a challenge, but it's a, one that can be tackled. What is the business's retention policy in the office for hard copy records or for electronic records? And can we observe that in the new workplace? So, for example, hard records is the secure shredding on-site or off-site being observed in the remote workplace and for electronic records have you dialed in with your IT and your information security experts to make sure that the conversation includes them because they're really key to to all aspects of this Mm -hmm. conversation and they're in high demand at the moment but there's no reason why they can't facilitate you remotely. So it throws up a number of issues, really. And can you give just some guidance or tips for employers as as to how they can mitigate the data protection risks uh, surrounding the the remote working environment? Yes, certainly. So I suppose the key first step, and it's kind of a, a holistic approach to this, is to take out your compliance, take out your data protection and privacy compliance project that you all worked so diligently on in uh, 2018 when the GDPR was was rapidly approaching and which you will no doubt be updated on an ongoing basis anyway as this is a it's a live compliance issue. So take that out and look at your compliance, your, your organization's compliance through fresh eyes. Look at it through the eyes of the world in which we now live and in this new remote working world that doesn't look like it's going anywhere anytime soon. Uh, So for those of you who already have a sophisticated and live compliance regime in place, and maybe as part of that, you're already facilitating, um, you know, a cohort of remote workers in your organization anyway, you might be pleasantly surprised to learn that, you know, that that regime and that compliance requires minimal updates. Um, For others, this will be more challenging, but what we do is we take a risk-based approach. So as Yes, there are challenges, but they're no by no means insurmountable and you know they, they, they need to be overwhelming by the challenge. As I mentioned already, engaging with your IT and your InfoSec experts to conduct a, a remote security review of systems and of the use of devices. I understand that if you know if, if these resources are external, that's going to be an additional spend for your business. But in our experience, this is one of the key things that InfoSec and that IT experience is one of the primary things that the DPC always asks about. So if you already have that in your back pocket, it's money well spent and it's very um, it's comfort for organizations to know that they have that. In terms of other ways of mitigating risk, kind of on, on a 
a, a daily basis, wherever possible, ensure that only business approved systems and communications platforms are used. So I understand sometimes personal email addresses perhaps and accounts just simply have to be used. But if this is an absolute necessity, the way to mitigate that risk is to use strong passwords on any documents containing personal data or, or indeed uh, business confidential information. Employee training, always key. And for all employees who are now a remote worker, whether or not they, they even process personal data as part of their role, They'll need to be reminded on on the basics because this is new for them. So we're, you know, when I say basics, I mean phone etiquette and screen etiquette, particularly for those those high sharing employees, perhaps of of competitors, and reminded that there shouldn't be a security decision attitude simply because we aren't in the office or in in the workplace. That slippage, you know, really shouldn't be tolerated. So that's for all employees. For any employee who is processing personal or special category data on a regular basis, so perhaps colleagues or employees who are working within the HR function or, or talent management, they will need and they will probably, you know, I would expect they'd be ordinarily getting regular training anyway, but some tailored training for them. And also, depending on the risk factor, you could consider something like multi-factor authentication for access to their systems if it, if it was deemed necessary, taking a risk-based approach circulating and recirculating updated policies and procedures and maintaining updated records of these. And going back to the beginning of, of this guidance on risk mitigation and the holistic approach, what we find to be really useful and what employers consistently tell us is useful is to promote a culture of support rather than one of fear. So when employees feel like there is trust and there is confidence, they're much more likely to share any, you know, potential incidents that may give rise to a personal data breach. And they're more likely to share these, you know, up the management chain if something does arise, which is a much better position to be in from the organization, from the data controller's point of view, because it means that they are alerted in time and they can manage it, they can get in front of what, you know, may be an incident, may be a breach but it means they aren't on the back foot if an employee is terrified of, of reporting it up their chain of report. Just means the organization is, is better placed to face that. So promoting that culture of support is, is really key in risk mitigation. Thanks, Emer. And you mentioned circulating and updating policies there. So I'd like to turn to Tina. Tina, on the employment side, what policies or updates are you recommending that employers would make having regard to the fact that a lot of employees may be working remotely at the moment? Thanks, Geraldine. Yeah, this is certainly something that um, a lot of employers are querying at this point. I suppose just to take a step back, as many of you are aware, the safety protocol and return to work, the government guidance which has issued it specifically recommends that policies are reviewed and in particular remote working policies, sickness policies and annual leave policies. So that should be our starting point. But in addition to that, and what we are seeing now that you know, remote working is going to continue is you need to consider how, for example, disciplinary issues will be dealt with, grievance hearings, bullying and harassment issues, and how annual leave will be dealt with. So again, these are all policies that you will need to look at. Um, I know many of you are probably thinking we can't possibly amend all of those policies and that, that involves you know, revising our employee handbook. So what we are recommending as a workaround is that instead of you know, introducing a whole new suite of new policies or amending your employee handbook, which might not be exactly what you want to do right now, is to create what we've 
implemented is the COVID-19 live policy. And what this policy does is it'll temporarily address the changes that are required in the business at this point in time due to COVID-19. So as such, it's a live document and it allows you to introduce changes in accordance with the updated government guidance. So as you're aware, the government guidance is regularly changing. So it will allow you to update it and amend it as the business needs to require. So it's quite useful that it's a live document in that regard and it allows you the discretion to update it as, as you require. But I suppose, you know, some employers are not putting in place this type of policy and instead what a lot of our clients are doing is rolling out a more permanent remote working policy because what we and what many of our clients are telling us is that they now see, well, firstly, that remote working is actually working quite well for them within their businesses, but also they see this as more of a long-term solution and that they are willing to facilitate this going forward, whether that's on a part-time basis or full-time basis, or whether they simply close their offices and continue to do this in the long term. So really, it's looking at a remote working remote work policy at this point is what many clients are doing. And it's something that we would strongly recommend that you have in place. And really, it's to deal with those issues that would ordinarily arise in the office, but are now going to arise in a virtual context. And many of your employee handbooks and policies that are in place within those handbooks simply do not deal for those sort of challenges that arise now in a virtual context. That makes sense. And I suppose you touched on a remote working policy and a strong recommendation that employers include it where they have a remote workforce. What should employers include in that policy or what areas should it cover? Yeah, so I suppose the remote work policy is, you know, it should be separated obviously into various sections. The slide that I have here on the screen, I suppose, is a useful, hopefully, tool for all of you to just check that you have these various topics covered off in it. But the first thing I suppose is to consider whether remote working is a temporary or a long-term measure. So if it's a temporary measure, it's important that you make it clear in the policy that it's not going to be a change to employee contractual terms at this point in time. However, as I already mentioned, many employers are at this point looking to roll out a more permanent remote work policy. So really it should address who can actually work from home, but as to who can work from home will really come down to the type of the role that the employee actually performs. So really what you should be noting here is that this will come down to the employee putting in a request and then having a conversation with his or her line manager to determine the suitability of a remote working arrangement. Then I suppose communication is the next point. This is something that a lot of employees are having concerns with at, at the moment, and I suppose Alison already touched on this, but a lot of employees are experiencing issues of isolation in the workplace, and in particular more junior employees who might not be as familiar with the office or might not be as familiar with some of the larger teams that they're working in. So it's therefore prudent to include a communication section within this policy, and it should, for example, include details in relation to the communication platforms that are approved by your business for your employees, how virtual team meetings are dealt with, that can be used to share updates, discuss work programs, for example, or just generally how to support employees. Another point Alison mentioned is, you know, set it out in writing that there will be one-to-one meetings regularly with employees. And if employees ever want one-to-ones, to just reach out to your manager. And then finally, guidance on tools and systems to help employees adjust to the new ways of working. So it's just, they're quite simple points, but it's to put them in writing and to ensure that the employees are aware as to what's going on. I know I mentioned, you know, revising policies earlier on and in particular disciplinary grievance policies. But something that a lot of employers are now coming to us with is how do we now deal with the issue of performance? Because a lot of employers have simply turned a blind eye to performance for the last couple of months. 
felt it was difficult to approach at this point in time, given the virtual environment that everybody was suddenly operating within. But it's simply something that cannot be ignored. And how performance of employees is measured should be clearly communicated to employees at this point in time. The government guidance recommends that employees must work from home. So similarly, employers are permitted to performance manage employees where there are issues. So you should confirm in writing in this policy how disciplinary, grievance, bullying and harassment issues are going to be dealt with and making it clear that investigations and hearings can be dealt with remotely. Again, it should be made clear that for investigations in particular, and I know, Darlene, you and I were working on one quite recently where we had you record a meeting, an investigation type meeting. So it's important that you know you specify that meetings cannot be recorded, the confidentiality of the process, that it's not permitted to share documents, because I suppose all of you are well aware, it's very easy to simply press the record button on a Zoom meeting. Alison has already, I suppose, touched on the issue of company equipment. But again, this is something I suppose that's is generating a lot of discussion at the moment and the extent of an employer's obligation and how far do you have to go and what do you actually have to put in place. But again, you know, we're recommending to employers you come out in front of this and you put your position forward. So most employers are providing employees with their laptop at a minimum. Most employees have a laptop in any event and have just continued to work from their laptop at home. But you should prevent, so as to prevent disputes at a later point, you should make it clear whether secondary equipment is going to be provided. So get out in front of it and confirm, for example, are you going to provide printers, screens? And if they are going to be provided, will employees be reimbursed for such expenses? Then just moving on finally to health and well-being, I know Alison has already touched on this and has suggested that everybody roll out online uh, yoga classes. Um, but this is, again, something that it's been widely reported, as Alison mentioned, that employees are now working longer than ever while working from home. And from an employer's perspective, it's really important that you encourage employees in writing and remind them in writing that they must comply with their normal working hours to take rest breaks, to ensure they have a safe place of work to get outside and take some fresh air, to make sure that they're aware of the employee assistance programme. Because if you don't remind employees of this, it could later be argued that the employee felt that they had to keep working these kind of hours. So you as an employer need to actively take steps to ensure that your safety and well-being of your employees and so as to ensure that they're not working excessive hours. So really, this is just a useful checklist of the key items that you should cover off in a remote work policy. One point that I would flag um, before finishing up on this slide is you might give some consideration as to how you would roll out this type of policy. And typically what I'm recommending to clients at this point in time is you seek acknowledgement perhaps from the employees that they have read and understood the policy. Because at least then if there's any issues or if there's any complaints at a later stage, you can very clearly outline to employees that they already read the policy. And I noticed that that was one final point, but one other thing I would recommend in that policy is if you have health and safety policies, and as Emer mentioned, security and data privacy policies, ensure you put a link into those policies, link them through to the internet so that employees know where they are and that they're available to access. And again, you've everything then captured in the one document. Thank you, Tina. And there's a lot of issues to consider there. And 
I suppose we've had a number of questions come through in our Q&A box as well that we'd like to deal with. And we've allocated a lot of time to deal with the various questions that come through under this topic. But before we do so, I'd like to ask participants to take a few minutes to answer some questions in the poll that we have. So we're going to display the questions in the screen in front of you. You should see them. Um, it's just four short questions around the area of remote working, just to get a sense of the trends that we're seeing in the space. And we'll display the results on the screen as well. For those of you who've dialed in by audio only, I'll call out the questions. So it's effectively, have you provided employees with any of the following to date? So it's either work from home allowance, a payment for office equipment to assist at working from home, a wellness allowance, a payment or allowance for meals or none of the above. We also wanted to ask, do employers, do you intend to offer long-term working from home as a permanent option for employees? So that's a simple yes or no. Also, have you carried out a self-certified health and safety questionnaire to determine if an employee's remote workplace is suitable? And as we mentioned at the outset, uh, the HSA website does set out some, a number of questions that employers can include in such a questionnaire. And the last question was, how has productivity fared generally since introducing remote working? So we've seen lots of stats being released on the newspapers around this since the COVID-19 crisis began. So again, just interested to hear your thoughts on your organisations and what you're seeing. So... In terms of results, then for the first question as to whether employers or organisations are providing employees with either working from home allowance or office equipment or wellness allowance, we see the majority provide none of the above. So 75% of respondents provide none, none of those equipment or allowances. And then I suppose 14% provide payment for office equipment to assist with working from home. And then a minor 7% provide a work from home allowance. So I presume an allowance towards equipment that employees can use for, for their home workspace. So interesting to see the majority provide none of the above. And I guess that aligns with what you outlined at the outset, Alison, around there being no statutory obligation on employers to provide equipment, specific equipment other than the basic laptop, perhaps for employees working from home. The second question is whether employers intend to offer long-term working from home as a permanent option for employees. So again, we're seeing the majority there as to yes, employers do, um, or your organizations do intend. So that's a 66% majority, which is uh, pretty strong and shows, I guess, uh, the relevance of this issue, and not just during the pandemic, but as a more longer term issue that organizations will need to adapt. And I saw the Wall Street Journal had an article last month, late last month as well, where they said they were predicting that organizations are just going to change on a permanent basis um, as a result of the pandemic. And they're, and they're predicting a lot more working from home arrangements on a longer term basis. The third question we have was, have you carried out a self-certified health and safety questionnaire to determine if an employee's remote workplace is suitable? So the majority there have not, 63% have not carried out that questionnaire with 37% of, of respondents saying that they have. So again, I think probably something for those organisations who haven't to consider just to close off your obligations on the health and safety front and to note that they do extend to the home workspace as well. A comment I'd make on that is if we've seen some employers actually also engage health and safety engineers to do virtual assessments of the home workspace as well. 
which is quite innovative. So I suppose they can do a video conference almost where they virtually look at the employee's remote workspace. And I've heard that that's been quite effective where it's been used. The last question is, how has productivity fared generally since introducing remote working? So mixed response, but I would say 52% said that productivity has stayed largely the same, which is positive. And 21% say that productivity has increased by 25% or more, which again, I feel aligns with a lot of what we were reading in terms of the, the stats that were being released at the outset of the pandemic. And then 26% of you say it's just too early to accurately determine how productivity has changed, if at all. So a factor that that might be relevant there is that it's hard to actually gauge it if there aren't metrics in place which show productivity um, in some workspaces that lends itself to it a little more easily than others. So thank you for taking the time to, to go through those questions. I'm now just going to take you through some of the questions that we've got through the Q&A box. And I've been taking down a couple of these. The first one, I think, is, is one that has come up in a number of different forums. And I might direct it to you, Tina. It's in relation to, I suppose, requests to work from home. And how should employees handle a request by an employee who wants to continue to work from home after the restrictions have been lifted? So where they are permitted to return to work, but the employee perhaps doesn't want to return and would like to continue their working from home arrangement. Thanks, Geraldine. Yeah, this is something that's come up a lot for us already and has a lot of employers concerned. I think a request like this really, though, has to be dealt with on a case-by-case basis with the employee and his or her manager. There are a number of issues to be considered for this type of request. And what I'd recommend would be the following considerations should be taken into account. So, for example... The first thing is, was the employee's reason for wanting to work from home? Understand what that is. Can the employee fulfil his or her role while working from home? Has the employee obtained medical advice? And if they have, it might be quite hard to shy away from that if, if there is medical guidance recommending the employee continues to work from home. And that may be because the employee might be, for example, in a vulnerable category. So again, check is the employee in that type of category. Again, more generally though, you know, will the employee working from home, will it hinder collaboration with other team members or will it hinder training for the employee or simply other employees for more junior employees who may need mentoring and support or interns or trainees within the office? So yeah, there are a number of issues to be considered. It's it's not really a simple yes or no answer. So I, I really think that consideration, careful consideration needs to be given to each request and flexibility and reasonableness is expected from both the employee and the employer when considering the request. So really, it should be something that you consult with the employee on and come to an agreed solution as to how best to work around it. Okay, so it's uh, handle it on a case by case basis effectively. And I think what's relevant there also is perhaps, you know, as we move away from the pandemic, hopefully there was a, an EU directive on work-life balance, which came into force on in August last year. And that does require Ireland to implement legislation to address flexible working by August 2022. So I certainly think that this is an issue we're going to see a lot more developments on and, and legislation on over the course of the next couple of years. And certainly it's it's become more of a priority now for the government probably than, than it was when it was first, when that directive was first introduced. Another question I want to ask you, Tina, is related to that. What if we've seen some employees move 
to their home country at the start of the pandemic and they were working remotely from there where their office was Ireland perhaps but then they they went back home what if they want to continue working remotely from their home country what would you advise employers on that respect yeah again yeah this is something we're certainly seeing a lot of and and a lot of employees are actually still in their home countries working there. Uh, for some reason, it seems to be primarily employees working out of France and Spain. Well, certainly that's what's landed on my desk. But there are two issues really, I suppose, to consider when answering this question. One is employment considerations and then two is tax considerations. So on the employment piece, it's important to be aware that while an employee is working in his or her home jurisdiction, the mandatory employment laws of that jurisdiction will apply. So for example, if an employee is working in France, mandatory French laws will apply, meaning that an employee could potentially take an employment type complaint before either the French courts or the Irish courts, given that the employee is going to be on an Irish employment contract. So that's the first thing to be aware of. Then secondly, on the tax point, which is probably a little bit more complex, but really this is going to come down to an analysis of the tax rules in the jurisdiction in which the employee is currently working. So again, if the employee is in France or Spain, for example, that you liaise and you consult with your local tax advisors in those jurisdictions to determine whether there are any rules or exemptions in place for employees who have found themselves in a position whereby they're working from their home country or want to continue to do so. But I suppose what's interesting to note is that you know, the Irish position in this regard for those individuals who find themselves working in Ireland, I suppose, through no fault of their own and are here because of COVID-19 and can't leave the country, the Irish revenue have actually come out um, and they're willing to disregard presence of individuals in Ireland, which are solely on account of COVID-19 for the purpose of certain tax rules and in particular the application of payroll taxes. So it may be likely that there are similar provisions in other jurisdictions. So it would be well worth you know, checking those out because it may really suit an employee and you may be happy to simply accede to that request. So we would recommend you liaise with your tax advisors or your payroll consultant from that jurisdiction uh, just to confirm that point. Great. Thanks, Tina. Another question that's come through on the Q&A is where you have an employee or perhaps a small team and one of the employees is is asserting that they have a medical illness and that they don't wish to return to work because of that illness. Um, I guess perhaps because they may be at greater risk of contracting COVID-19 or may be anxious about that. What would you advise or how would you advise employer deals with that situation? Yeah, so this is something that's coming up a lot. And again, it's, people are keep asking, you know, what is the vulnerable category and, how, you know, can you require that person to go back to work? But if an employee provides a medical cert to you confirming that the recommendation is that the employee should be permitted to work from home, it's going to be very hard to not accede to that request because that's the medical advice. And none of us are medical advisors who can question professional's authority. But I suppose what you can do, and you're just coming back to basic principles in terms of absences and illnesses in the workplace generally, if you do have the provision in your contract of employment or your sickness absence to have an employee independently medically examined, you could perhaps have that employee medically independently examined by your own company doctor. And when having the employee assessed, ask the doctor to confirm what accommodations are reasonable and proportionate in the circumstances for this particular employee. Because your duty as an employer is to put reasonable accommodation in place for employees where it is required. So again, it will be useful to have your own report together with the employee's report, and then you can make an informed decision on the basis of both reports as to how best to proceed. 
That's great. Thank you, Tina. Um, another question, I think this one I'll direct towards you, Emer. If an employee leaves some HR personal data exposed in their home, are they and their house sharing with others? Is this a personal data breach that they need to report? It depends. As we all know, the, the data protection rules are risk-based. So it really depends on the circumstances. And I suppose to say at the outset, what might you know seem like a breach and what might cause incite you know panic in, in that type of scenario and it, it happens um, and it does incite panic. But just to remember that not every security incident like that is necessarily a personal data breach. And likewise, not every personal data breach is reportable or notifiable to the Data Protection Commission. So just to say that at the outset to provide some level of calm. Having said that, what needs to take place immediately is a risk assessment by the data controller, most likely to be the employer. So to address what the risk is posed by the incident and determine if it is a breach and if it is notifiable. The definition of personal data breach is broad. So you have to really take a very careful look at it and take advice before reporting. But the key to it is to manage it as quickly as possible. And this is where it ties into the piece about promoting this culture of support, trust and confidence. The reporting window for a notifiable personal data breach to the Data Protection Commission or to any supervisory authority is 72 hours. And that time ticks down extremely quickly um, in that type of scenario where, as I say, you know, panic sets in. So in order to best position the organization to get in front of it and to deal with it, the employee or the person who perhaps is the potential root of the vulnerability or the incident has to be um, in a place of confidence that they feel like they can they can raise their hand and, and bring it to the organization's attention so that it can be addressed and it can be risk assessed. That makes sense. And Alison, I have a question for you. It relates to the issues you were raising around tracking working time for employees who are working remotely. So um, the question is, do you recommend that employers are in- should introduce software to track employees' working time when they're working from home? Yeah, we have seen um, a number of employers introduce IT analytics tools and other electronic methods in order to track employee working hours to address the requirement to record working time. However, this does put employers on notice of potential daily working time breaches and also stress-related injury issues. So it does trigger an obligation on an employer then to act and intervene. Employers do need to be conscious of how to act on this data once they gather it and how best to ensure that they can show that they've taken all reasonable steps to prevent any stress claims. And obviously introducing these types of tools can also have a negative impact on employee relations issues. So we would recommend that legal advice is obtained before introducing these tools due to these potential issues and also associated data privacy issues that need to be considered. And then related to that, Alison, um, another question, although I think it's it's primarily a tax question, but perhaps you might be able to address it briefly, is are there any tax reliefs available for employers who provide allowances to employees for their working from home equipment or costs? Yeah, there are, Geraldine. So where employees are not paid an additional amount by their employer for working from home, an employee can claim tax back on expenses such as heating, electricity and broadband by submitting relevant receipts to their local revenue office at the end of the year. At the moment, revenue are currently willing to accept that the rate for the cost of running a home office is 10% of the total cost. So this means an employee can claim 10% of the total amount of 
of allowable utility bills against their taxes in respect of the days that are worked from home. And we would recommend that employers notify employees of this relief being available. There's also another tax relief that's available. So employers can pay employees €3.20 tax-free a day to employees to cover additional costs associated with working from home. However, in practice, we're not seeing many employers offer this to employees at the moment. Great, thank you. And Tina, just a related question for you. You answered the question around an employee with a medical condition not looking, not wanting to return back to the workplace. But there's a question in the Q and A about an employee who's a who is living with a vulnerable adult or a vulnerable person, perhaps, and that individual doesn't want to return to the workplace. Have you any guidance for employers on how they'd manage that situation? Are they allowed to continue to work from home indefinitely? Well, again, I suppose you need to, like, again, I think this is going to come down to medical advice and medical opinion because it's very hard for an employer to simply accept, okay, I am living with a vulnerable person or somebody in a vulnerable category. So I think you need to enter into some form of consultation with the employee and understand what exactly the circumstances are. And, you know, is it possible, you know, the employee could simply work from another room or, you know, understand if there's actually accommodations that can be put in place for the employee or if they have simply no choice but to come into the office. So again, it's really something that has to be explored further. And I think you're going to need the benefit of medical advice as well to guide you as to how best to deal with a response like that. And um, Emer, just on again on the data protection front, we have a question that an employer has had to allow their employees to use their own devices when working from home, which I assume is their own laptop or perhaps phone. Is that permitted and what can they do to reduce risk? That's a really common query. And just to say, you know, it's, it's understandable in light of what we've, we've been discussing and in light of what is all our new reality that from a business continuity perspective for businesses that weren't set up for remote working, they've had to, you know, I suppose, manage. And this query is a common one where employees are having to use their own devices in certain circumstances just to get the job done. So let's just accept that it's not perfect, but how we can manage the risk is uh, to say that so your own device, an individual and employee's own device without any company software on it is probably the highest risk because that presents a complete lack of control for the business. Again, it's understandable, but you know, if, if a, a personal device has to be used, at the very least, we would recommend that company infrastructure and security is installed on that device. Again, it's not the safest option. The safest option being a company-issued and fully controlled device, so backed up, up-to-date software is kept up-to-date and that the company has full control, albeit remotely, over that device. Thank you, Emer. Another question that is, that's come through, I might direct this one towards you, Tina. It relates to an employee who has gone overseas, perhaps on holiday, and at present, I suppose anyone who comes back into Ireland from abroad is required to quarantine for, or self-isolate for 14 days. Can an employer require the employee to take annual leave for that 14-day self-isolation? Yeah, it's an interesting one, Geraldine. And I suppose really what we would recommend in a case like this is that where the employee returns, that where the employee can work from home, you permit the employee to do so for that 14-day period. And then obviously that mitigates the risk of the employee coming into the office and it protects the company and the other employees as well. However, where the employee cannot work from home, the employee is required by the current guidance 
to quarantine for that 14 day period. So what we would recommend is that the employee instead is required to take sick leave for that period because as such, the employee isn't available for work. So strictly speaking, they're not entitled to be paid for that period. So what we would recommend is probably instead the employee, even if they want to obtain a medical certificate and confirm that they are medically required to quarantine for a 14-day period and could instead maybe avail of the sick leave policy, it'll be difficult to mandate an employee to take their annual leave for that two-week period in circumstances where it's mandated by the government that they have to self-quarantine. Okay, so I suppose it may be the case that the have symptoms in which case it would be sick leave and they should yes. take that and or they're medically required to self-isolate as well so in which case they may avail of the sick leave policy and perhaps one of the updates that you were mentioning when you were going through the updates employers should make to their sick leave policy is the circumstances in which that can be used as well I think clarification on that would be really helpful and um, so whether that's included in your COVID-19 live policy or um, updates to the existing sick leave policy I think that's a really good point. Another question Tina is if an employee wanted to go into the office perhaps because their internet at home wasn't working properly prior to the government roadmap or the return to work safely protocol permitting employees to return to the, the office. Can employees do that? Can they, can they go in? Um, or what would you advise employers in that regard? Well, if, if it's not safe for the employee to work, to return to work and where the employer has not the requisite standards in place and social distancing measures implemented, then we'd recommend that the employee is not permitted to return because as you'll see from the current guidance, I think it's actually phase three this month, it confirms that employees should be permitted to return where socially distanced measures have been approved and facilitated. So that will require a risk assessment having been carried out and a safety expert having come in and confirmed that yes, the social distancing requirement is satisfied in this workplace and it's therefore safe for employees to return to work. So absolutely, we would not recommend the employee comes back. And I know that part of that question, I think, was can the employee sign a disclaimer and basically say that they still want to come back? And again, I think it would be difficult to rely on that disclaimer at a later stage in circumstances the government guidance is very clear on what the measures are. And if, if you already do not have your socially distance guidelines approved, then I certainly think that it's something that we would recommend against. Great. Thank you. There's another question just relating to the working time records. So I'll direct that one back to you again, Alison. It's, it's basically, have the WRC relaxed any of the rules around working time in light of COVID-19 and the number of employees who are working remotely now? Well, actually, no, Geraldine. The WRC are still being quite stringent in terms of carrying out inspections. And we have seen WRC inspectors issue improvement notices to employers who don't have adequate record keeping systems in place, despite the additional difficulties in tracking working hours during this time. Okay. And I suppose to maybe assess the possible exposure that might arise for employers there, what are the possible sanctions that employers could be issued with or what exposure could they face if they haven't adequate records and systems in place to monitor and record working time and rest breaks? 
Yeah, non-compliance with working time record-keeping obligations can result in a criminal offence and a penalty of up to €2,500, which can extend to directors, managers and secretaries in certain circumstances. In our experience, working time non-compliance issues arise more commonly in inspections rather than in compensation claims and penalties and sanctions under working time legislation were relatively rare until last year. However, recent case law has held against an employer who passively permitted an employee to continue working from home late in the evening after her normal working day had finished. And that employee was awarded €7,500. And the basis for the award was that the employer hadn't maintained adequate working time records. So it really came down to the WRC deciding between the credibility of the employer's evidence against the employee's evidence. Mm -hmm. So that case really went to the heart as to why it's so important for an employer to be maintaining these records. So I guess an employer won't be in a good position to defend any of those types of claims if they don't have a system in place to, to record working time and rest breaks and therefore it's leaving itself wide open perhaps. To a claim or to a potential award. Emer, I have a question for you and I'm conscious we're just coming up to time so perhaps this might be the last question. It's just in relation to data protection and employee training. So what should employers include in their training to remote workers around data protection to cover off some of the issues that you raised earlier? Uh, yeah, great question. Thank you. So I suppose a lot of the what might seem, you know, common sense type things, but they really can't be they can't be overstated. So as I mentioned before, screen and phone call. What I mean by this is making sure that your screen um, is facing towards a wall and, you know, not outside, not a, a window and um, to preserve confidentiality and, and security of, of personal data. Likewise, with phone calls, if possible, you know, if matters are going to be discussed that are confidential and that this is done away from that housemate who works for, for your competitor. Password protocols on sensitive documentation, so safe passwords um, and sending the password separately, making sure that access control are correct. Just make sure as well also the email etiquette around double checking email addresses using the blind copy function. These are all just as important when working in the home as in the office. Again, you know, physical work files or USB storage, remote storage devices shouldn't be left ended and they should be appropriately secured at the end of the day. And, you know, although it may seem difficult, not allowing work devices or any device that has work information on it to be used by by children in the home, although I know it is inevitable, but where possible, it needs to be, the practice needs to be minimised. Great. Thank you very much. So we will wrap it up there. Um, the recording of the webinar will be available on our client learning hub and a link to that will be circulated to those of you who have attended also together with a copy of the slides. But in the meantime, thank you very much for attending and thank you for your participation in the poll and in the Q&A. I know there's a large number of Q&A that we didn't get to, so we will try and review those questions and come back to you on those. But in the meantime, hope you have a great day and stay safe and stay well. And we look forward to seeing you again soon. Thanks everybody for listening in today. As I say, in the coming weeks, we will be back to the normal format and there are some interesting decisions that are well worth taking a look at. If we have any more webinars coming up in relation to COVID-19 matters, or even as part of our general employment law masterclass series, I'll make sure to let you know. Thanks and take care. 
Thanks for listening to the Matheson Employment Law Podcast. If you have any questions or comments, please email brian, that's B-R-Y-A-N, dot done at matheson.com. This podcast contains general information about Irish law. It is not intended to provide legal advice on any particular matter and is for general information purposes only. You should not act or refrain from acting on the basis of any material contained in this podcast without seeking the appropriate legal or other professional advice. Tune in next time for another Matheson Employment Law podcast. For further information, visit matheson.com.